0: Well, if you could ask God for anything, what would it be? Maybe you'd ask Him that the A.C. wouldn't have gone out this morning and we had to restart it and that's why it's a little warm in here. Or maybe, maybe you'd ask Him finally for, for some help to break that addiction that you just can never seem to get past. Or maybe to, to finally free you from that sin that haunts you that you hate but you, you still love. Or maybe to, to finally help you with your, your health because every day is a battle to get out of bed and to just face the rest of the day. Maybe it's finally to have some financial security so that you can put to rest all of the anxiety that you're always feeling about how you're going to pay the bills and make it another day. Maybe it would be for you to finally get, get married so you won't feel so alone, or maybe for you to, God to fix your marriage so that you won't feel so alone. Or maybe it's broader that God would finally rid the world of famine or war or, or th- something like that. And all, all of those things are, are, are good prayers. And I think they're, they're things that we, we could and, and ought pray for. But as we come to Exodus chapter 33 and 34 this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to see Moses pray a prayer that kind of puts all other prayers in their their proper place. Not dismissing those other prayers, but helping us to see that God is not a means to an end, but rather God himself is the end. And that we ought treasure Him and desire Him above everything else. And that if we get Him, that everything else gets put in its proper place. This is what we will see in Exodus chapter 33 and 34. And as we come to this text, kind of our big idea for this morning is this. That God's presence is more precious than anything He can ever give us. Knowing God's presence Enjoying God's presence is more precious than anything that he can ever give us. And I think in many ways this is the whole point of of the book of, of Exodus. That God drew Israel out of Egypt to draw them unto himself that they would know him and enjoy him and find delight in him. And that's what we've seen in chapter 1 through 18, where we saw the rescue of God's people, where God displayed his power through the plagues and delivering Israel from Pharaoh and the slavery in, in Egypt. And we saw the Passover in the Red Sea, that he redeemed Israel and made Israel his own. And then in chapter 19 through 40, we've been seeing the revelation to God's people, where his presence is now among them and they are learning to live as his people, that he is making them holy as he is holy holy. And in order to do that sometimes he lets them hunger and he lets them thirst so that they can cry out to him so that they're aware of their need for him. And then he gives manna from heaven and water from the rock and then ultimately his law which instructs them about who he is and who they are and how much they need a savior to come and to rescue them. And it sounds like a great plan but if you've been keeping up in Exodus things haven't gone so well. I mean getting Getting Israel out of Egypt wasn't really that hard in one sense. But getting Egypt out of Israel is taking quite a bit longer. What's marked their journeying has being murmuring and the making of idols and continually turning away from the God who's done nothing but be good to them and work that they might know Him and enjoy Him. Well, this morning we're going to find Moses on the mountain after the, uh, the golden calf incident, and he is going to be interceding on behalf of the nation of Israel with the aim that he and they might know that God's presence is more precious than anything that he could ever give them. Let's begin here in chapter 33, verses 1 through 11, where we're going to see an imperfect promise. An imperfect promise. God is going to make an imperfect promise to his people. Verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, depart, go up from here, you and the people uh, whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying to your offspring, I will give it. And I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites and the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but... Therefore, the people of Israel stripped themselves of the ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. Now Moses used to take a tent and pitch it outside the camp, far from the camp. And he called it the tent of meeting. Everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. And Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up and each would stand at his tent and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. Verse 9, when Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. When all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship, each at his tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. And when Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man would not depart from the tent. So God had promised Israel that he was going to dwell among them. We've seen this numerous times throughout the book of of Exodus. But after all this grumbling and after this golden calf incident, there's been an adjustment to the itinerary. God says, I'm not going with you anymore because, verse 3 and 5, I would consume you on the way for you are a stiff-necked people. That phrase, stiff-necked people, it's used of of a child who wouldn't bend their neck to turn and to listen to their parents. It's used of a yoked animal that tightens its neck to resist direction from the one trying to lead it. This is what characterizes Israel. They don't want to be directed by the Lord. And God says that he's holy. And because he's holy, he might up and kill them if he goes with them. So rather than destroy them, God says, I'm going to distance myself from you. This, by the way, is the great tragedy of sin. Most of us, when we think about the tragedy of sin, we think about the consequences that we feel in our lives. The guilt, the shame, the wrecked relationships all of the memories we wish we could undo, all the times we wish we could rewind and redo scenes in our lives because of the the, the ramifications and the shrapnel that, that, that have just blasted our lives. When we look in the Scriptures, we see that the great tragedy of sin, all those consequences are intended to highlight the great tragedy, which is that sin separates us from God. Listen to this from Isaiah chapter 59. Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. Your sins have hidden His face from you so that He does not hear. Now, to the untrained ear, what God promises Israel doesn't actually sound so bad. I mean, God says, verse 1, Go up from here to the land I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, so he's going to keep his, his promise to give him a land of prosperity. This land, verse 3, is a rich land with milk, which means there's abundant cows and honey from all the bees that have drawn to blossoming uh, vineyards there. So it's a land of prosperity. And verse 2, I'll send an angel before you to draw, drive out all the ites. Right, He promises here a personal, angelic escort to take them into the land and to rid all of their enemies. He says, you won't have to deal with any trouble there. This angel will take care of all your trouble on the way. And listen, we're going to go ahead and just scratch the idea of the tabernacle where God dwells in your midst. And instead, if you need something, God is on call just outside the camp in the tent of meeting. And, you know, you've got a, a paid clergyman in Moses who can deal with all the God stuff. If, if you've got something you need from God, just Moses will go out and he'll take care of it. And you guys can stay even at your home and watch it from there. And you can, you can watch him while he does all of the labor on your behalf. That sounds like a pretty good deal in one sense, right? I mean, it's like God offering you a heavenly place. If God were to say to you, I am going to give you a land... A land like one that you would only dream of. A world in which there's there's no more cancer. There's no more poverty or taxes or miscarriages or broken hearts. A world where you never go to a funeral again. No more gossip. No more abuse. No more adultery. No more disease. No more depression. No more shady politicians, no more crooked judges, no more threats of terrorism, no more sin, no more sadness, a place filled with friends and laughter and happiness. But there's one catch. God won't be there. Would you still want to go? Appreciate your honesty. (laughs) Everyone else was thinking it. I mean, you'd have there in that place his protection from pain and suffering and oppression. And you'd have there in that place his provision of health and wealth and stress free living, comfort. But his presence would not be with you. How would you respond to that offer? Because listen, everybody wants a happy life. If there's really a hell, nobody wants to go there. Everybody wants to get pain-free heaven. Everybody does. Every atheist, Buddhist, moralist, Muslim, every Republican, every Democrat, every Libertarian, every Socialist, everybody can agree that they want that. But what sets people apart is the question of, do you want God? Because when a, when a true believer hears that offer and then hears that God won't be there, we say, no deal. You can keep all of that if I still get Him. Verse 4, when the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned and no one put on His ornaments. This is a sign of mourning, that God is not with them. So they strip off all these signs of celebration. It's very interesting, this word, disastrous word there in the ESV, it can be translated this bad word or this bad news. It's the opposite of good news or gospel news. See, the gospel news is that you get God. The bad news is that you get everything in the whole world, but you don't get him. And Jesus taught us that this is a bad deal. In Mark 8, 36, he warned the crown, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Listen, y'all, this is where we have to learn that, that peace and life, true life, what everybody's scrambling for, cannot come from anywhere other than God. You can't find true life apart from his presence. And this is why so many of us, both believers and non-believers, feel so empty so often. Because our lives are really committed, if we're honest, to pursuing all of those things in that list that we talked about just a moment ago and not really ever even thinking about whether we're getting God or not. Most of our lives are are marked by a continual indulgence in sin's fleeting pleasures and scrambling to try to advance and seeking to be affirmed and to be respected and to be included. But one of the, the secrets of life that we all have to realize and that God wants us to see here in this text is that no matter what you get, a creature without his creator, without her creator, will be empty and anxious and always looking for something else. So something I want you to think about personally for the rest of the week and hopefully the rest of our lives that maybe talk about over lunch or talk about in a small group. Is God's presence more precious to you than anything else? Do you desire to see Him to to know Him, to to hear from Him more than anything else, to the point where you're willing to lose everything if it means you get more of Him. And I I don't think you can do honest evaluation on that just to know, well, let me think about it. You need to pray and ask God to show you. You need to ask friends to pray for you that you might see whether this is true or not. And if you find that it's not true, be, be honest with Him and ask God to change your heart. Come to Him with desperation, a desperate prayer, very similar to the prayer that we see Moses praying now, which brings us to our second part. So, our, our first little part here was an imperfect promise, and now we're going to see a desperate prayer, a desperate prayer in verses 12 down through 23. This conversation is between Moses and God at the tent of meeting. In chapter 34, we're going to see him go up on Mount Sinai. This is happening out at the tent of meeting. Moses said to the Lord, verse 12 "See, You say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name and have also found favor in my sight. Now therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. These are your people. Now, just just pause here for a moment. You notice the first thing he prays for? He prays for God to reveal his ways. He's requesting divine direction, which is very different than the way that many of us pray. We come to God and say, God, here's what I want to do. Could you arrange this for me? Versus Moses says, listen, I don't know what to do, show me the way. Those are worlds apart in regards to the type of prayer that you're praying. It's fine if there's something you really desire to bring that to the Lord. But if you're never praying this other one, it's likely because you're too convinced of your own wisdom. Moses knows that following their own wisdom has got them nothing into a bunch of idolatry. He wants to know what God is doing so that he can follow God and he can lead other people to follow God. Then notice also he prays for God to remember his people here. It's not because he thinks God's forgot them, right? It's not like Moses like, "Ah, oh, Lord, remember Israel? And God's like, oh yeah, I forgot about it. It's not how it works. Rather, he is interceding according to God's promises. See, one of the things that Moses knows is that God loves it when his people bring his promises to him and say, Lord, but you said, you said, Lord, you were going to go in, in the midst with us. And right now I'm parked out in this, this nice trailer out here, outside the camp. And everybody's inside the camp looking out here, but you said you were going to put your presence in our midst. That's what you said you would do. These are your people. Moses clings to his promises, and as that happens, it seems to be stirring a faith in Moses that hasn't always been there. His faith is being provoked because he knows he's praying things according to God's plan and purposes. It makes his prayers fervent. Well, verse 34, and he said, "'My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest.'" The the Hebrew literally says, my face will go with you. It's highlighting God's intimate care. He will personally escort Moses as he leads Israel into the promised land. God will plant them there that they can know a rest from their, their slavery. Very similar to what God did in the Garden of Eden where people were out of Eden and now God has ever been escorting them to the new Eden. Well, verse 15 He said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? Moses says, listen, Lord, all due respect, if you aren't going with us, there's no point in us going either. We don't want the land if you are not going to be in the land with us. We are not just in this for some kind of real estate acquisition. We want you. That's what set us apart the whole point, the whole time is you. We want you. And Moses is, is, is uh, I think, similarly to, to Jacob here, praying with God in such a way that he's, it's almost like he's wrestling with him. You remember Jacob where he says, I will not let you go until you you bless me. Well, Moses here, we won't go unless you go with us. He's holding on to God's promises. And he knows that it's God with his people that makes them distinct. Sure, God's protection set Israel apart during the plagues, but now here even more, God's presence among them is what sets them apart from the nations. Which, by the way, is I think just highlights the utter foolishness that God's people seem to continually get caught up in in this attempt to look so much like the world in order to be cool and accepted and embraced by the world with the thought that that's going to win people to Christ. Now, I'm not just saying be weird for the glory of God, but I am saying that there ought to be a distinction in the way that we think and we speak and we act than the world. If we are God's people, then we are to be holy as he is holy, and it's that holiness, that distinction that might make people look and say, y'all are weird, but you got something. You got something that we don't have. I know that's one of the things that the Lord used to draw me to himself was several people that he placed around me, who in one sense were not people that I really ever envied their situation in life but they had a peace and a joy and a freedom that I could never find at the end of any drinking binge or drugs or relationships that I was scratching for and I couldn't find, but they had it. It's God's presence among his people that sets them apart as as distinct. Well, verse 17, And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken I will do for you, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. And Moses said, please show me your glory. Show me your glory. Now, if you write in your Bible, I'd encourage you to underline that prayer right there. If you don't, make a note somewhere to come back to this verse. Show me your glory. The idea of God's glory, the word glory, it, it, it's, it's the Hebrew word that, that it's related to the word heavy. Heavy. It's the heaviness, the weightiness of who God is in all of his splendor and his majesty and his goodness. It's it's the weight of that. Moses says, I want to feel that. I want to see that. I want to know that. Show me your glory. Now, one of the things that I was struck by as I was studying this, and this is where conviction really started to set in for me in this text. I thought, what produces that sort of prayer in a person's heart? What what, what produces that sort of prayer in somebody's heart? Because that's not normal. I mean, most of our prayers are are focused on more mundane things. Lord, give me a parking spot. Lord Jesus, you can work any miracle, please. Lord, I need, a, I need a job opportunity. Please, get me out of this job, get me into a better one. Lord, might the Redskins, please. Lord, just, just one winning season. Lord, what, what could we do? Now, yes, I say pray about everything. I pray about parking spots every time I go out. I ain't lie, I always do. <laughs> but this kind of prayer is different. It's, it's a different sort of prayer that puts all those other prayers in their place. Where does that kind of prayer, show me your glory, come from? You've got to remember what Moses has been doing. For These past weeks and months, he has been spending time with God. Remember verse 11? The Lord used to speak to Moses face-to-face as a man speaks to his friend. God spoke to Moses. Meaning, when he says face-to-face here, it means not in visions or dreams, but through words. Moses didn't visibly see God, but he knew him personally. He makes that clear later on in the text. But get this, even though he enjoyed a nearness to God that few have Ever tasted this side of heaven? What does he want? More. I want more of you. Show me more glory. I've already been on the mountain. I've heard you speak. I've seen you do miracles. But it's not like you thought back, like, this is cool. What else can we do now? <coughs> no way. <clears throat> he says, I see you, and all I want is more of you. Show me your glory. Whoever has ever told you that heaven is going to be boring has never encountered the God of the Bible. Whenever it's, think about this. In Isaiah chapter 6, you get Isaiah, one of the holiest men on the planet at the time gets called into heaven and he's in a room, the throne room of God, and God is high and lifted up and you've got angels flying around and they're created with six pair or three pairs of hands. And and two of those are to cover their face. So they, they can't look upon God. And the whole time, what are they crying out? Holy, holy, holy. Now, fast forward. 700 years, Jesus comes. Fast forward, book of Revelation, at least 100 years written later-ish. We'll talk about that in a week when we start it. But Revelation, the book of Revelation, you come, and guess what? You get a, you get a picture of the throne room once again, and John is there, and guess who's still there? Angels. And guess what? They're still crying out holy 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 talking thousands of years and they have not gotten over God they're still amazed in his splendor so whoever told you that nonsense that heaven's gonna be boring has never met God the depths of who he is we will never scratch we don't scratch the surface for all of eternity further up and further in Moses gets a little taste of that, and he says, show me your glory. And God answers, verse 19. He said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live And the Lord said, Behold, there's a place, there's a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. So God will grant Moses his request. He's going to give him a glimpse of the glory that he has called for. It's described there, verse 19, as his goodness. But his goodness is a, it's a holy goodness. So holy that Moses can't look on God's face and live, so God's going to hide him in the cleft of a rock and shield him from getting a full taste of the dazzling light and devouring fire of his glory. This again, we see this separation between a holy God and sinful man. And Moses is the holiest, and number, uh, Numbers 12 tells us, the most humble man on the planet, yet even he can't look upon God and live. This God is unlike us in every way imaginable. So he's protecting him from his presence here. He says, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I I will show mercy. God has the prerogative to reveal Himself to whomever He will, which, by the way, is one of the reasons that if you, if you ever hear God's voice through His Word, if you ever feel His conviction about a sin, you should heed the words of Hebrews 3 and 4 to not harden your heart, but to obey and follow, for it's mercy that cries out. Well, chapter 34, we come now to number three, a a glorious appearing. A glorious appearing. Chapter 34, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, cut for yourselves two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on these tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Which I always think that's hilarious. He's like, you broke them. I saw it. It's okay. I'm not mad at you. I would have broke them too. Verse 2. Be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him and took in his hand two tablets of stone. So Israel broke the law, Moses broke the tablets, now God is renewing the covenant, and now Moses has been called to deliver fresh tablets up to the top of the mountain, but he's to come alone. This time, nobody comes because all of Israel has been defiled. Only thing I want you to notice besides that is that, do you notice when this happened here? There, verse 5, or verse 4, the end of verse 4. When did Moses go? I'm going to wait till after lunch, maybe after I go fishing in the, in the afternoon, No, it says here, early in the morning. That phrase is often tied to the obedience of God's people. It's used of Abraham, of Jacob, of Moses, of Joshua, of Hannah, of David, of Job. It's the response of people who love God. The first thing you want to do is obey Him, not find all the ways you can delay your obedience. If you find yourself trying to put off obedience with excuses, you might ask yourself why. Well, verse 5, the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who by no means will clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. When he says here the name of the Lord, it's, it's basically a resume of who he is. It's a summary of his, of his character. It's what, he's, it's what he's like. Now, it's very interesting. Where have we seen this name of the Lord proclaimed to Moses before? It's the same name that the Lord revealed to Moses in chapter 3 at the burning bush. It's the covenant-keeping name of God. He's displaying here his faithfulness to keep his promises, and it's really interesting that this description of the Lord that we see here in verses five through seven, it shows up some seven times in the Old Testament. It's like God puts this on repeat. He wants you to know this is what I'm like. This is what I'm like. This is what I'm like. And because it's so important, I'm not going to be able to do justice to it right here. But John Henderson, this fall, while I'm preaching through Revelation is going to actually take this section and he's going to do, uh, yeah, do a series through it, helping us to think about what are these qualities of God and how do they transform our lives. So we're going to come back to this later. But for now, we notice here that God is merciful and gracious. These are two words that are at the heart of God's dealing with his, his people. The word merciful is related to the, the noun for womb. The connection here is there's this, there's this providing care and protection for the helpless and the dependent. This is who God's people are, and he shows them mercy or compassion. <laughs> He's also here gracious. It's, it's unmerited favor, specifically in the forgiving of sins. If God was not gracious, he would have obliterated Israel already. We notice also here that God is slow to anger. It's interesting. The word literally is, tra- it's The Hebrew literally says he's long in the nostrils, which does not mean that God has a big nose. Rather, it's a a metaphor for when a bull rages, its nostrils flare up. God's nostrils, as it were, are slow to ignite. He's, He's not passive, but he's patient. God is also abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Though His people sin and they stray, God is faithful to keep His covenant promises. God is also forgiving here. You see, God does not delight in sinners dying in their sin, but He delights in canceling their debt and delivering them from the wrath of God. He delights in doing that. He is a forgiving God. But He's also also just. It says right here, He will by no means clear the guilty, this is very important. So if you tuned out, tune back in for a moment. What this means is that all sin, from the brutal terrorism of ISIS down to you stealing a pen from work, God will not overlook any sin. And all sins have eternal consequences. All people for sinning against a holy God this one that Moses can't even look upon though he's the holiest man on earth so forget the stuff of comparing yourself with other people it's fine if you're better than other people everybody here is probably better than me but you're not compared to each other on the day of judgment we're compared to a holy God and everybody falls short of his glory so sin not only has eternal consequences but it also has temporal consequences did you catch that there? He said he's visiting the iniquity on the, th- <coughs> excuse me, the third and fourth generation. He's not speaking here about some kind of generational curse, which is the way that some false teachers have twisted this verse, but he's speaking here of the consequences of sin. I mean, think of the effects of Israel's idolatry, the ripple effects that it had on generations of their people, which just as a word of application for us. Though, United, though the United States of America is, in, is not Israel and is in no way in a covenant with God as Israel was, God is the same God. And <laughs> sin has lasting effects in people and nations. I mean, when you, if you look at our country with the sins of racism and abortion and pornography and greed and sexual perversion, the ripple effects of those sins, especially when they're not repented of, it's like a tidal wave that will just wash away a nation. This ought to humble us as a people and pray for God to bring revival in our land and that he might begin with us. But this this idea here of God being merciful and just this is what some have called the riddle of the Old Testament. Because if you really think about it, this is kind of impossible. I mean, how can God excuse me, be, both, <clears throat> be both just and merciful? How can he be both good and forgiving? If you've got a judge who just says, hey, listen, I know you killed a couple of people, but you seem sorry and I'm kind of nice, so you, you're fine, go free. Is that a good judge or a bad judge? He may be all kinds of merciful and forgiving, but he's no good judge. He's a wicked, corrupted judge. The God of the Bible is not like that. The God of the Bible does not just forgive because he feels like it. He can't do that because he's bound by his nature to be good. So how in the world can God then forgive sinners and at the same time bring justice for all of our sin? Well, what's his name? His name is Jesus. That's the only way it can happen. The only way that justice and mercy can happen is that God says, I'm going to come down. And he comes down. The eternal Son of God becomes a man and lives a sinless life so that he's got no justice deserved upon his head and then he goes to the cross and there in the place of sinners like you and like me, he takes the full justice and wrath that humans deserve upon himself and then he goes into the grave which is what everybody deserves and everybody would go to and never come out of until the day of judgment and then plunge into eternal hell, but in his mercy. Jesus rose from the dead, and now he has the authority to forgive sins for anybody who will turn from their sin and say, I want his righteousness, not my own. By faith, it will be credited to them, and they will stand forgiven and just as satisfied, and God is glorified. That's the gospel. That's the good news. That's why just getting a place with a bunch of stuff without God is no heaven at all. What we want is the God who forgives our sins and gives us himself and then just throws everything in on top. This is the hope of the scriptures. And you know what? God delights in extending mercy more than he delights in in pouring out wrath. Verse 7, notice there, his steadfast love and forgiveness is for thousands. And Deuteronomy 7 says thousands of generations compared to the three or four generations for the consequences of sin. God loves for the ripple effects of mercy to run wild among his people. Well, when you hear that, it'll bring you to what it brought Moses. Verse 8, Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth, and he worshiped. And he said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people. And pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your inheritance. Did you catch his two responses here? The first is humble adoration. He sees God and there is joyful, reverent worship. The same way that you might feel if you stood before the, the, the Rockies or before um, the uh, the Grand Canyon, or, 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 or on the beach, or you see a tidal wave come. There's something that's, that's intriguing that you want to see, but you also are aware that it's greater than you. It's an inviting terror, if you will. There's humble adoration here, which I think is important just to notice that seeing God properly puts us in our place. That we are the creature and He is the creator. This, by the way, is one of the great tragedies of suppressing the truth of God that we see so prevalent in our day. I mean, our culture, its one ambition is to get God to shut up about what our bodies should be, about what our sexuality should be, about what our relationships should look like, about suffering, about who gets to be born and who gets to die. God just needs to shut up on this and let us run the show. Romans 1 calls that the suppression of truth which leads to the worst thing that God can say. Thy will be done. And he gives the people over and says, fine, have it your way. Which is exactly what he could have done with Israel. You like idols? Fine. Sit down there and enjoy your golden calf all the way to hell. But in mercy, he intervened. And Moses pled for God to show mercy to them which is the other thing. We saw humble adoration, but also hopeful intercession. Moses sees God is merciful, and he's compassionate, and he's gracious, and he's forgiving, and he knows that's exactly what these people need. This is what I need. This is what they need. (coughs) That's why he said, go in the midst of us, for it's a stiff-necked people. Now that seems interesting. God just said, if I go in your midst because you're stiff-necked, I might blow you up. But Moses says, we're stiff-necked and our only hope is that you come among us. Because we're stiff-necked, this is precisely the reason we need you. We're a straying, sinful bunch and our only hope is not for you to leave us in our sinfulness and our stiff-necked rebellion, but to enter into our sinfulness and to pardon our transgressions and to change our hearts that we might be reconciled to you. And don't just give us Uh, an inheritance but he says here take us as your inheritance make us yours do whatever you've got to do that we might know you and see you and enjoy you give us you it's the same kind of prayer of show me your glory this is what's on moses's mind and his heart so it moves him to adoration and intercession well verse 10 he said god behold i am making a covenant God said this, Behold, I am making a covenant. Before all your people, I will do marvels such as have never been created in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among you whom you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. Despite Israel's rebellion, God remains faithful. He renews the covenant here, and he says, You thought the Red Sea was something? Buckle up, Moses. Y'all ain't seen nothing yet. I'm about to take you into the land of Canaan and I'm gonna clear out the place and I'm gonna give you the land I promised to give. You thought what I did with Pharaoh was amazing? Hold up and watch what I do with nations. Now verses 11 down through 26 is basically a summary of everything that God said in chapter 20 through 24. So in 11 through 17, he says, don't worship idols. Uh, Verse 14, "You, you shall worship no other God from the Lord Uh, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. They'd just done the golden calf thing, so he knows their hearts are fickle and prone to wander. So he gives them the warning to not give into idolatry. Then in verses 18 down through 26, he says, devote yourselves to God. So don't worship idols, but do devote yourself to God. And he exhorts them to remain faithful here, and he establishes Sabbaths to give them both Weekly and yearly rests. And then he establishes these feasts and festivals, which you'll see more in the book of Leviticus, where verse 23, three times a year, all your males shall appear before the Lord, the God of Israel, where they're going to come and they're going to party and they're going to feast and they're going to fast to remember God. He says, Forget the idols and remember me. And I'm going to establish my ways among you through the law. Verse 27. And the Lord said to Moses, Write these words, for in accordance with these words, I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. So he was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water. And he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. Now, some of you read that and you're like, Bruh, 40 days, 40 nights, no food, no water, that's impossible. Well, listen, if you're looking for a God who only works within the natural realm, then you need to find a different God because this God is, if he can create Moses, he can sustain him for 40 days. This is what you call a miracle, or recently from Texas, a markle. This is, this is a miracle, okay? This is what God has done here. He, he has worked a miracle to sustain Moses. If he can create the body, if he can do the plagues, if he can split the Red Sea, if he can make breadfall from heaven and water spring from a rock, he can easily sustain Moses here during these 40 days in order to give him the law. Now this brings us to the final section. Fourth and finally, an amazing transformation. Verse 29. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, As he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone, because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. And afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. And whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what he had commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining. And Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him. Now, many things could be said about this right here, but, but I think the most obvious was that Moses had prayed, show me your glory, and God had answered his prayer. And it's so evident that God had answered his prayer that Moses radiated God's glory in his face. Now, a couple things. First of all, I think it's striking and very instructive the moses was unaware that his face was shining moses was unaware of this i mean the humility of moses is astounding he didn't even realize that he was radiating why because he was so consumed with god He wasn't thinking about himself. He was preoccupied with the purity and the beauty and the splendor and the majesty and the mission that he had just encountered of God himself. When you encounter God for who he is, humility is produced. One of the things that I was convicted of in thinking about this is that I fear that most of us would be taking so many selfies, whether literally or metaphorically, that we wouldn't be able to help but notice that glory was on us like this. You see, I, I fear that many of us, including myself, are too proud for God to safely lay such glory on us because we would seek to steal it from Him and to use it for our own glory. I think we're glory thieves. Pride is natural to us. Self-exaltation, self-promotion, self-advancement. This is what most of our lives are dedicated to. It is the drumbeat of this world in which we live and especially this area in which we live. So if you don't actively pursue humility, intentionally pursue humility you will by osmosis and alone and the sin within become consumed with pride i read this before we before i or during the prayer isaiah fifty-seven fifteen thus says the the one who is high and lifted up who inhabits eternity whose name is holy i dwell in the high and holy place He's set apart from us. And also with him who is a contrite and lowly spirit. God says, I dwell in the holy of holies of heaven and in the hearts of the humble. Which is why Moses radiated glory. Listen, if we desire God to show us his glory, it will require us to humbly put to death the childish pursuit of our own exaltation. Exalting self and making much of self is child's play. It's what the world lives for because it thinks that in that there's going to be life. But what we're to learn here is that life cannot come apart being filled with God and you don't get Him by being emptied of other than being emptied of self. Moses was unaware, but Moses was also transformed. Moses was transformed. And this, is, this is not just talking about a shining face, which is pretty impressive. But, but the Moses of chapters 3 and 4 is not the same Moses of chapters 33 and 34. He's a different dude. His peace has quieted his anxiety faith has replaced his fear boldness has overcome his hesitancy his his excuses to avoid God's commands have been eliminated now at this point at that point he'd do anything to get away from God so that he didn't have to do what God called him to do and at this point he'd do anything to get more of God he's absolutely a different person he's been transformed from one degree of glory to another now how does that happen It's because he's been with God. He's heard his word. He's seen his glory. Like, there's no switch. There's no pill. There's no class you can take. That's not the way it goes. You can't encounter glory here without being changed. And you can't encounter glory apart from encountering God. Moses has been with the Lord, and it's transformed him. It's, it's through everything that he's done. It's through going by faith back to Egypt. It's through going to Pharaoh when he's terrified. It's through fighting through all the people who hated him at first. It's through going and doing the snake thing and the leper thing. It's, it's through... Plague after plague after plague. It's through going out to the Red Sea and be like, we're going to die here, but no, God, you said. It's through walking through the Red Sea. It's through the man. It's through the water and the rock. It's through the the, the, the failures with the golden cow. It's through all of that that he's kept looking to the Lord and encountering the Lord, and that's what's changed him. It's the only way it happens. The only way you're made more like him is by being with him. It's, it's, there's no, there's no class, y'all. It's called faith shown in obedience, leading the more faith in obedience. And you might say, well, listen, buddy, that's really nice, you know, but, but, but Moses, I mean, he literally had a mountaintop experience. I mean, come on, right? I ain't got one of them. What about me? Well, As great as Moses' experience was on the mountain, what we have in Jesus is infinitely better. You see, Moses went up on the mountain to see glory, but Jesus came down from heaven to show us glory. John 1.14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glories of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Moses hid in the cleft of the rock to not be consumed by God's glory. But by faith, we're hid in Christ, who is the rock, to enjoy God's glory. Moses was permitted to see the glory of God's back. But in Jesus, 2 Corinthians 4, 6, God has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Yeah. Moses, Moses went up on Mount Sinai to intercede in a way that, that moved God to pass over Israel's sin. But Jesus went up on another mountain called Calvary and there his intercession, intercession paid for all of our sin in full. Moses' intercession ceased when he died but Jesus' intercession never ceases because Hebrews 7.25 he always lives to make intercession for us. You see, Moses received a covenant that led to condemnation, but Jesus established a covenant that leads to salvation. Moses' face was transformed by beholding the glory of God, just the backside of him. But now, in Christ, through the Holy Spirit, our entire lives are transformed because the Spirit enables us, by faith, to see Jesus. And by seeing Jesus, that's how you're transformed. Listen to this, 2 Corinthians 3. Now, if the ministry of death, what happened with Moses on the mountain, carved in letters of stone, the law, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end. Will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? When one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Which, by the way, for some of you this morning who hear all of this and be like, I don't think I believe that. The reason is because there's a veil over your heart that keeps you from seeing the glory of God. And if you know that to be yourself, I would encourage you, please, plead with God to remove the veil that you can see the glory of Christ. He says, and we all, with unveiled face, meaning all believers, beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. The way you change, Christian, if you want to be freed from sin, If you want to know the peace that passes understanding, if you want to know a joy that can't be tied to stocks or who's in the White House or whatever else seems to steal your joy, do you want that? The only way is to fix your gaze upon the glory of Christ by faith through his word, through prayer, through obedience. This is how it happens. Moses was promised a land that would inherit Filled with with, with milk and honey, yet in Jesus we received the promise of a better land than Canaan. Listen to this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, Revelation 21. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people and inheritance. And God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. God says, I'm going to give you a land, and it's better than Canaan. And what makes it better is he is there. Finally, Moses was told that no one could look upon God's face and live, yet in Jesus we have the promise that in that land of promise, Revelation 22, 3, No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him, and they will see His face. Believer, that's what awaits you if you are in Christ, that we will go to a land where there's no more crying or tears or pain, all that stuff that we talked about at the very beginning that God could do for you, yes, He'll grant that, but better than that, if God is your treasure and your greatest pleasure, you get Him. That's the good news of the gospel, is that God changes what you love from loving your own glory to loving his. So, in your praying, plead with God, first, that you would want to see his glory, and then secondly, that he would show it to you. In your reading and your studying and your sharing of God's word, do it as if you're desperate to know him, like to really know him, not just check off a box, but to know him. In your obedience, resolve to do it in such a way that you'll do anything He asks as long as He's with you. In your confessions of your sins, do it in such a way that it's so clear how much you need Jesus. Now you're trying to cover it all up. And in your proclamation of the gospel to those who don't know Him, do it in such a way that you don't fear them, but you fear the Holy One of Heaven. And that you would want them to see the glorious One Who came among us that we might know him and enjoy him forever. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and we thank you for what you did with Moses and in Moses and through Moses that we might see your glory. Father, we thank you uh, for this section of scripture and we pray that we would treasure Jesus. Oh God, as we sing even now, would you help us to sing not as those who are half dead or half asleep, But God, that we would by faith lift our voices to you and to believe that indeed your mercy is more, that where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more, and that all glory should indeed be to Christ. Oh God, would you fill us now and in every day between now and the day when we see your face. Show us your glory. In the name of Jesus, amen.